So I go to the guy that got me in and I was like telling him these problems. And his response to me was kind of like, I don't want to hear any more about this. You know, like he knew about obviously what was going on. And so then I realized this is a scam. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'll be your worst podcast host today. And I'm here with featured guest E.B. Tucker. E.B., are you ready to rock? Let's do it. All right. So, let me introduce you to the audience. EB is the former editor of the Casey Report, strategic investor and strategic trader. He is a board of director member and major shareholder of Metalla Royalty and Streaming Gold Royalty Company. This company is listed in New York Stock Exchange. The code is yep. MTA. It's worth about right now, market capitalization is getting close to about 300 million Canadian dollars. And that's from a start of about 15 million. So way to go. He's also the author of Why Gold? Why Now? The War Against Your Wealth and How to Win It. And has more than two decades active in capital markets. In addition, well, he just told me that he wrote that book in 23 days. Was that your number? 20? That's true. Oh. So I think for the listeners out there, I highly recommend you go on Amazon, check out the book, very interesting, great reviews on it. So, E.B., take a minute and fill in further tidbits about your life. Well, the other thing about the book, Andrew, is, it, is that I'll also read it to you through Audible, which some people like, like that. So, I read the whole book. It's about five hours in the studio. So, look, it's been a great journey. I mean, we were talking earlier about some of the, the ups and downs, and I'm going to tell you all about the downs today. You know, people talk enough about the ups, but there certainly have been downs. And they're funny once enough time passes by, but it wasn't a straight path to get here. I didn't go to an Ivy League school. You know, I was interested in stocks from an early age, and I went the hard way. And now in my 40s, finally, it's paid off. And hopefully people can see that you don't need to be afraid of, of getting bumped around a little bit on the road. Yeah. And one of the first questions I have for you before we get into the, your story is, you know, just talking to you a little bit before we turned on the mic, it's clear you've got a lot of things going on and a lot of energy you know, putting into those things. What do you do in your free time when you're not working? Well, it's a great question. I, I have two small children, so I, I chase them around. And I do Pilates is a thing that, you know, you and I were talking about goals was one of the things you were yeah. talking about. And, and I do Pilates twice a week. And I have a, a premise that long life is about balance. You know, so you don't want to do extreme exercise. You want balance. And I found the Pilates into your 40s is a great way to stay moving. And also, I'm a Zen enthusiast. So I have a Zen teacher, and he has a little house on the river here, and I spend a couple of hours each week studying Zen, which is a fascinating thing to study because there's really no endpoint. So you just, you're just kind of walking on this path and you're having a good time doing it. And the only thing I don't do is I don't have a television. So there's no television here and so there's no distractions and you know it's either working or reading a book or looking at the art on the walls or meditating or having a nice conversation so it's kind of like life must have been like about a hundred years ago you know yesterday I went down the street and I went into the Pilates studio that's now reopened and I signed up for 10 classes 
just yesterday. And then you mentioned Pilates. Do you think yeah. I made a good decision? Yeah, it's, I would recommend a one-on-one -on -one because this is very complicated stuff. And yeah. what happens is, is that the, the machine is going to help you get strong and stretched at the same time. And I didn't think that was important when I was younger. I mean, I would go to the gym or do all these kind of crazy outdoor workouts and, you know, things to really push yourself. But now life has changed and I'm realizing that you've got to stay flexible and strong in ways that you wouldn't have thought of before or else you're going to hurt yourself. And then what good are you to anyone? If it's good enough for EB, it's good enough for all of us. So I am going to follow that advice and I already am. So exciting. All right. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one ever goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Well, a big part of this was, you know, 15, 17 years ago, roughly, I was trying to break into the finance field. And like we talked about, it wasn't easy. I mean, I didn't go to a fancy college and I didn't have recruiters, you know, coming by and saying, come work for this investment bank. And a lot of my friends did, you know, they went to the investment banking programs at Goldman Sachs and City and all these different places. And that was their start in the business. But shortly, I realized that they were pretty square. You know, they were thinking kind of in one way. And I was always thinking in a very radical way. And so it was really hard to get into the business. And I kept getting hired in sales jobs because they would say, well, you're pretty charismatic. Why don't you sell the product? And I, what I really wanted to do was to manage the, manage money. And so finally in 2006, I, I get this, this friend of mine because I had always in the sales role kind of been involved in reshaping things and, and using the finance background to do that. And he said, look, I met this guy playing golf. And this guy is like a, does corporate advisory stuff and restructuring. And he's trying to like restructure this company. You know, it's, I think it's a great opportunity and you should be the, the sales VP. And, you know, he'll, he'll bolt you in there with an equity position like right away. So I was like, this sounds like a winner. So I meet this guy and he's pretty charismatic and everything. And so he's like, look, you know, let's get you on board. I want to get you involved. And so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm in my twenties and I'm like, this is my chance. This is great. So he, proposes a package of like, you know, a bunch of warrants and options and stuff. And it's like a bulletin board company. So it's like a, I don't know, 5 million market cap or something. And he's like, we can make this thing huge. You have to and explain like, what a bulletin, bulletin board okay, is. Okay. You mean so, on the wall? So this, is a, this is a company that, that doesn't trade on the major exchange. So it doesn't, it's not compliant with its filings. And it means that you can buy stock in it but you're not buying stock, you know, on the New York Stock Exchange, you're just kind of buying it on an off market. And it usually says like buyer beware. Yep. Right. So I mean, the stock will be like five cents or whatever, you know, it's just kind of like a, it's a dark place to be operating. So basically, the company has like this somewhat natural pest control is their premise. So mm -hmm. they have like this product that they claim they, they raise money. So they're raising money. And I, they're like, we'll pay you a commission if you help us raise money, which mistakenly I, I did introduced to some of my friends who invested maybe 150 grand or something, 150,000 US dollars. And this is, you know, I mean, I was like my, in my twenties, I was thinking this is kind of a lot of money, right? So they hire me, they give me a salary of something like $8,000 a month or something. And, you know, expense account and a bunch of stock warrants and options, and all these things. And my friends are invested and I go to meet the CEO out West at their facility. And this was a disaster. The CEO was like this strange guy with a yellow Hummer. You know, those Hummers that GMC made in the credit years. He had one of these yellow Hummers. And he was like some kind of cartoon character. And 
everything was a mess. And so I come back a little bit put off by this. And then I find out the next week by calling around, they don't have the federal EPA licenses that they claim they have in the presentation to investors. They don't have them. Worse yet, this is where it gets worse. I'm on the phone with the EPA and they say, we don't even have licenses like that. <laughs> so the whole thing was made up. So I'm like, now, wait a second. Okay, the CEO's weird, okay? I don't know where the money went for my friends because already they're, they're broke. Instantly, the money went right out the door, okay? So this is, I worked there about two weeks. And then I find out that they don't have the licenses that they advertise. So now I know there's a real problem, okay? So I go to the guy that got me in and I was like telling him these problems. And his response to me was kind of like, I don't want to hear any more about this. You know, like he knew about obviously what was going on. And so then I realized this is a scam. Okay. So what do I do? Because technically I'm an officer of the company at that point, because I'm a sales VP, right? So that's a named position. So you have responsibility. And this is a, a company, even though it's not on the New York Stock Exchange, it still has shares and it's soliciting investors. And this is a big problem. So they stopped paying me when I brought these things up. I was only there two weeks, but they're, they cut me off, okay? So I had to hire a lawyer myself first to represent me in documenting all these things. Now, I'm in my 20s. You know, I'm just starting out. This is a big risk for me. I'm not getting paid. And all my friends invested this money, and the company is a scam. So I hire a lawyer, a big firm called Fowler White, which does like a lot of, they're very expensive. So I, got, I had a guy there write the letter documenting all the fraud that I found. It's costing me about 10 grand. So he sends this to the board, certified mail. There's only three people on the board. And at that point, they're, now they're furious with me. Okay, so what about my investors? I can't even tell them what's going on. They're calling me, hey, how's the new job going? And, and I can't even tell them your money's gone. I mean, it came in the account and went right back out. Okay, I don't know where it went. So I had to hire another lawyer out at the beach in Clearwater Beach here in Florida. I found this guy, luckily found this guy, and I'll, we'll talk about this in a minute, how I mm -hmm. found him, who's excellent at figuring out how to, to get your money back. And so what he did is he coached me on what to do. I took those steps to document what I'd found as soon as I'd found it in case I got drug into it, which mm. is always smart. And then what he did is he, he came after the company and he found that there was one guy who didn't know about the fraud and he was able to attach to that guy and to get him to clean things up. And my investors did get their money back. This took about six months. And it was a really tough time for me, Andrew, because I was, I was young. I didn't have that much experience. I, I had the best of intentions. I was really trying to, to make a go of this and like break into this field, which now, you know, I'm, I'm way into this field, like to the point where we do a stock offering and we have four investment banks and six lawyers. I mean, it's like a whole different ballgame. But then I was very new. And so I was the same guy and I had the same passion, but I didn't have the experience. And this was really a tough setback. But what I want people to realize is that it ended up being okay. We got through it and I learned so much and I've never had a situation like that come up since. However, I have had several situations where I've had an instinct that there were problems and I was right. And I've avoided things in life. You're always going to run into people that are up to no good. And 
my advice to people starting out in their career is don't be afraid of these types of situations, but try to limit your risk so that you're not in a situation where you're going to be completely disabled by this type of event. Okay. It's okay to get a bruise, but don't get completely broken. There's so much to learn from this. And I want to go through, you know, each of the things that you learn. But I also want to keep in mind that, you know, there are people listening here right now that are being pitched such opportunities. And so for those people listening right now, it's time to wake up and pay attention to the next few minutes as you start to learn what EB learned during that time so that you can detect if you are stumbling into something like that. So let's go through what lessons did you learn? Well, the first thing that you got to do is, is you've got to take these risks. Okay. So you have to be in the game. Okay. To win. So when you get pitched all these ideas, listen to your gut instinct. When you meet with someone, you can ask all these questions. You can have a list of questions to ask, but you're still not going to be able to really determine if something's going to work out. So go ahead and ask your questions, but listen to your instinct. If your instinct tells you something's wrong, you can either say no, or you could go very small in the investment. Don't be afraid to go very small because if things work out, you can always invest more later. And if you have a small amount of money invested and it's a wild success, hey, you just, you made money. It's not a big deal. You don't have to bet everything on each deal. So when you, when you have these deals coming to you in the business, we call that deal flow. You want to see a lot of deals coming in. So don't be afraid to go through your process and to invest a small amount of money and hold back, you know, and don't feel pressure to invest all of your money, especially when your instinct tells you that there could be a problem. Hey, sometimes things work out. I mean, my sister is about to make six times her money on a private deal and she met the guy that runs the company at exercise class. Now, normally you would say this could be a scam but we settled on an amount of money for her to invest, which was very modest. And now she says, oh, I wish I had invested more. I said, well, imagine if you met a guy at exercise class and you gave him a million dollars and he just disappeared with it, you would really feel stupid. So my point is, is that don't be afraid to take these risks, but pull back, especially if your instinct tells you there could be something wrong. So I want to challenge you on these two things because I want to go back in time to when you were, let's say, vulnerable. Sure. You were, you know, your emotion is there, the opportunities there. And so the first thing, yeah, the first thing is that I just looked up instinct on the internet. And as a definition, it says, typically a fixed pattern of behavior in animals in response to certain stimuli. And I think the important thing for all of us to remember is that, and the great book that talks a lot about this is thinking fast and slow. And basically the idea is, is that an instinct is like an instantaneous thing. It's different from a feeling which could build over time and yes. can change. But an instinct is at a moment in time. And, yes. then, and then we move from that into our thinking, into our feeling. And so it's very important that we talk about the idea that an instinct is at a moment in time. So when you feel it, you've got to pay attention to it. So that's the first thing. But I want to challenge you on that because, and, and also this idea of go small. Because when you're vulnerable, when you're looking for an opportunity, when a big shot guy comes to you and says something to this, and you go, yeah, well, I think I'm just going to go in this small. He's like, no, 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 we don't do that. You know, you only got to go in this way. And it's just the powers of persuasion can be very, very powerful at that time. So help me understand for the average guy out there right now, man or woman facing this situation, do they want to go in small and still do the deal? 
or do they walk away? All right, two things. You have two different points here. Okay, first one, instinct. When you're born, you don't have much instinct in business. I mean, you don't know anything. So when you start out, you have no instinct. So you, you can try to listen as much as you can, but you don't hear anything because you have no experience. And so all the time I have these guys in their 60s or 70s that come to me for advice, for consultancy, okay, which I do, and they've been running, say, an insurance company their whole life, and they've never done outside investing. So now they say, what do I, I just sold my business for 30 million. What do I do now? And I said, it's too late. You, 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 you're just starting looking at deals. You're, you're, you're just, you'll, be, you'll be dead. So you remember that it's okay to realize that that instinct comes from experience. Now I can spot a crook all the way across the room. I mean, it doesn't mean that I'm not ever going to be susceptible to crooked behavior again in my life. Don't get me wrong. But what it means is that my instinct is really good because I've been through ups and downs in the market, Canadian venture stocks, you know, gold mining companies, you name it. I've seen it all. Okay. And so I know what works for me and my instinct is really strong. But in the beginning, 16 years ago, I didn't have much instinct. I had enthusiasm, passion, knowledge. I was hungry. You know, I was willing to do, to work hard, all these, uh, as many books as you have on the wall back there, reading all the time, really engaged in everything and serious. I mean, I was like a tiger ready to go, but a tiger that didn't really know how to play defense, only offense. Okay. So that's, that's the first part. Second thing is when you get intimidated by someone that's pressing you to make an investment, you need to realize something. You've got to figure out what you're holding on to because usually you're trying to, you have an idea that you're going to become rich or you're going to beat someone or you're going to do better than someone else or you're going to show someone how smart you are. You have to let go of that because the market is, and I say the market meaning private deals, is perfect at being able to find your vulnerabilities like that and find the things that you want deep down and then to torture you with them. And so the first thing you got to do is you got to realize, this is what I tell people all the time that have a lot of money. I said, you have to realize you are responsible for this money like a trustee. It's not your money. Well, yes, it is my money. Okay, you have to let go of that. It's not your money. Pretend like you're taking care of it for your grandson. And once you do that, you start thinking more clear-headed because you're not afraid. You just tell the guy, listen, my investment size is $20,000. I'm so sorry. Come back to me with the next deal. I hope it will be bigger. That's the end of the conversation. Mm. Because otherwise, you're afraid to miss out. And when you're afraid to miss out, you're going to make a big error because your thinking is clouded. Got it. And so for the listeners out there, for my fellow risk takers who are listening, I want you to imagine a desert with rattlesnakes and a little baby crawling through those rattlesnakes. They have no awareness because they haven't yet developed their instinct. Whereas if you walk through that area of rattlesnakes, you know the danger and you can protect yourself from the danger. So that also means that when you're young, you know, you need to be careful, you know, more, you do not have the instincts. You're like a baby walking through a field of rattlesnakes. All right. So let me just summarize a couple of quick things, you know, that I take away from this. The first thing is I've interviewed a lot of people and basically I've come to six common mistakes. And the number one most important mistake that is the most common is failed to do their research. And oftentimes we do our research after we do the investment. 
And the second one is fail to properly assess and manage risk. And you've already talked about the idea of reducing your investment size. The sizing and positioning is about how you manage risk. Because if you assess risk improperly, but you manage it well, the damage isn't gonna wipe you out. Number three, driven by emotion or flawed thinking. I can think about the emotions that you are feeling in your excitement in meeting this guy. Number four, misplaced trust. Here it is. And number five, failed to monitor their investment. That was definitely not the case here. You jumped on it the minute you saw problem. And then number six is when somebody invests in a startup company, it tends to lose them all of their money. But I also think that one last thing that I would take away is the idea of don't invest under pressure. If somebody is pressuring you to make an investment, you got to step back because either they're desperate for money and that's a problem or they're manipulating and lying to you and that's a problem. So those are some of the things I take away from your story. Anything you would add? Look, you talked about the rattlesnakes. Okay, just remember, I have small children and I think about this all the time. I want to see them make a lot of mistakes because the rattlesnake's not going to kill you unless you let it. Okay, you get a small bite, small bite, small bite. It's not going to happen twice. Okay, the instinct as it builds, you don't tend to make the same errors over and over again. And so you make fewer errors, okay, and they're more manageable and you're not afraid of them. And so people listening to this, don't be afraid to take those risks because like my friends that are 70 with lots of money, they don't know what to do with the money. You don't want to end up like that where you just say, well, once I get a lot of money, then I'll start learning. Yep. And it's a great point. And that's the reason why I start this off to say to win in investing, you must take risks, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. So I love it. And, and Andrew, in my book, I talk about my story of how I got started. I mean, the book is behind me here. Yep. I tell the whole story of how I ended up where I am today. And I tell it in a way that you get to see the, the down and the up, you know, it's, it's both sides of it. So let's wrap this up because I want to ask you a couple of questions about the book. So let's wrap up this story by asking you this question, based upon what you learned from that story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? And I want to hold you to one thing. And I want you to think about that young person in the same shoes that you were in, who's facing that today. And they're facing that, they're at the decision point. What one action would you recommend that they do? Go carefully. Because I wouldn't not, if I had to go back in time, I would still do the same thing. Hiring the lawyers taught me so much. I still communicate with one of them today a little bit. You know, he's a friend. So I learned so many things that helped me for the next situation that I was in. And it helped me become successful. When I met Brett and we did the partnership to manage money, like I, I had already a lot of connections, you know, and, and some of those I wouldn't have had if I didn't do that. So go, but go carefully. I love that. Go carefully. So I just want to talk briefly about the book and just, you know, the title is so great. Why gold? Why now? Maybe you could just give us the very short version of why gold? Why now? Yeah, I think gold's going to become the most important asset in the whole world. In the U.S., it's just now approaching about $1,800. It's going to go much higher. It's going to hit 1900 this year is my projection. It's the old 2011 high. Gold's at a high in every currency except U.S. dollars. People need to realize there's close to $300 trillion worth of debt in the world. 
And there's only about 11 to 11 and a half trillion dollars of the gold. It's a shocking number. So it's about one to 30, you know, is about the ratio of gold to debt in the world. And I'm not saying that comes even, but gold can certainly go up, you know, to its old high and then can go a bit beyond that. Now, I think gold's going to become the most valuable asset because the world is overrun with liabilities. You have so much money and you have so many liabilities and assets have low yield. So it's not like when you and I were starting in the business and you had, you had interest income. You know, in the U.S., the, the bonds are, pay you 60 basis points a year. You need like uh, $50 million to retire. So, I mean, it's impossible. You could never earn that much money. So what's happening? Everybody's turning into a speculator. So you can see how this is going, yet gold is the only asset in the world that has no other person on the other side. If you buy an apartment building, people have to pay you rent. If you buy a bond, a company has to make a coupon payment to pay you. So every asset relies on someone else, and those parties are breaking down. So gold relies on nothing. You just hold it, and it just sits there, and then it reflects the other side of what's happening to government money. Now, second piece of this, and I explain this in detail in the book is that royalties are the most valuable assets in the whole world. You would think that Google has the highest market cap you know, to employee, but it's wrong. You would think Amazon, even worse. So you go all the way down the line and gold royalty companies, Franco Nevada has 27 employees and 27 billion market cap. That's a billion per employee in market cap. It's the biggest gold royalty company. And so I explain to people what a gold royalty is. It's essentially a tax. So you get 1% of all the gold that ever comes out of the ground on one specific site. Even if the company goes out of business, your royalty goes to the next company, okay? So it's just 1% or 2% or whatever is negotiated. And so you have no operating expense, no mining trucks, no dynamite, no cyanide you know, issues to, to process gold, no looking for gold, none of these expenses. You have lawyers and you know, your, your analyst people and your CEO, and, and that's it. That's all you have. And these royalties pay for 20, 30, 40 years. You know, these mines go on a long time. So the book is a journey. Why gold explains what gold is all about. So if you know nothing about gold, in a very easy to understand terms, we're going to explain what gold is and how it's held up over time. Why now is we're in this unprecedented debt bubble era. We've never in human history lived throughout a time where we've had this type of monetary, this warped monetary system. It's been a monetary experiment. And I'm going to explain how this experiment is going to end. And I got to warn you, it's a bit scary at the end because the way this is going to end is a currency that's controlled on a blockchain so that every single currency unit is tracked everywhere it is around the world. And mm -hmm. if we don't like you, we can shut you off and keep you from spending your money and you're, you're definitely trapped. And the third part of the book is how do you own gold? We go coins and bars and royalty companies and mining stocks, the ups and downs of each of these things. And then my biggest personal investment of my life, which is in Metallo royalty. And I'm very optimistic and very happy. And it's a beautiful story of how Brett and I became business partners and put this together. And we worked very well together, you know, trying to build something which for our initial shareholders, they've made about 80% a year for the first three and a half years. And if so, gold so, goes higher, the royalty values, you know, they move higher with it. So I would love to just go deeper into two different things. One, I wanna talk about the royalty idea. And then I also wanna just say, you know, I wanna talk also about the idea that there's some people out there saying, nonsense, 
U.S. government can print as much as they want. Look at the dollar. Which is true. Strong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah dollar yeah. strong. U.S. market strong. Gold yeah. is, you know, gold is nothing yeah. compared to that. Yeah. So, but okay, but, we, but 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 look, but look, it's not. It's the market's really not strong. Okay, if you take out the biggest companies, you know, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, Tesla, you take these companies out, the market's down. Okay, and business is not good. I mean, you look at the U.S. banks, they can't make money, okay, because interest rates are zero. Yep. So the banking system can't make money. Then you look at all the assets, look at apartments in the U.S. You know, they, they trade for very low rates of return, all right? And then they need more and more money to keep going up in value so they can keep changing hands. It can't sustain itself. And so, and look, the U.S. dollar, yeah, the U.S. dollar is the world's premier currency. But I'm telling you, I mean, look at what's happening in Asia the last six months you know that the U.S. is always threatening and tightening that supply, okay, and causing a lot of friction with the Chinese. And this is, this is not a healthy situation. So the dollar is powerful because the U.S. has a dozen nuclear-powered battle groups floating around the world pointing guns at people saying you must use the dollar or else. So, yes, the dollar is powerful. Okay, but, and I'm not saying that that's going to go away. This is not about the world crashes or something like that. What I'm saying is it's going to take more debt more control, okay, more volatility, all right, to make these things happen. And all this stuff is really good for gold because gold is not susceptible to these types of threats. And we're not talking about anything magical happening with gold. Look, like we talked about earlier, a 50% increase in the price of gold still leaves at about 120th of the world's debt pile, okay? So we're not talking about something extreme. And 50% move in gold is absolutely over the moon for royalty companies and, and gold mining companies because the companies have not replaced their reserves. So gold production is going down and gold prices are going up. So yeah. what, what happens when you have that in finance? You have a panic. Yeah. And so the panic is gonna be to find the next big gold mine. And so when that happens, you're gonna have money is gonna be rushing into this business. And I'm telling you, it's a really small industry. Nobody cares about it. Nobody on Wall Street looks at it and look at the gold price. It's the number one performing asset in the last year. So don't get hung up on gold is stupid because look, if you want to really think about it, I mean, some of the tech stocks are kind of stupid. I mean, they don't make money. They spend billions of dollars to do things like play games on the phone. Okay. So we could make a real argument of what's stupid and what's not. All right. So don't worry about that. But when you see it's the number one asset. It's ahead of stocks, it's ahead of bonds, it's ahead of the dollar, okay? And it has no counterparty risk. You, gold doesn't fail. So it doesn't fail. So, so it's just there. If I summarize your argument, and that is you're not going to get into the debate about, well, inflation and the dollar and all that. It's just saying that all the other assets have an agency issue where I am depending on another person to provide something for me, whether that's profits as a business, whether that's government paying an interest payment, a company paying interest, but gold is just has value in and of itself. So why not rely partially on that? So that well, the other thing is, yeah, the world's flooded with money. So everybody wants money. Okay. They want more money at work. They want all this stuff, but what good is the money? It's useless. There's so much money in the world that mm -hmm. you get 0% at the bank. Okay. You go to investment products and you have to gamble to make any money. You can't find any deal that pays you 4% or 5% or something. It's very difficult. Yeah. Those days are over. The world is awash in money. Flooded. And so it's not inflation. It's deflation you have to worry about because there's so much money 
that the asset yields have compressed down to nothing. So it's, a, it's the worst of all worlds. Everything you own is going down in value. Everything you need day to day is going up in price. So what do you do if you're the average person? You're headed for a cliff. There's no way you, you could do it. It's a, futile, it's a futile game and you're in it. Like it or not, you might be a person that doesn't like numbers. Doesn't matter. You're in the money game. Otherwise, why are you working? You yep. go to work every day to have a better life. But the dollars or whatever currency, the yen, it doesn't matter. It's all the same. You have no yield on this money. So you could have a giant pile of this money and there's nothing, you got to go do something crazy with it. The argument that used to be made about gold, like I don't get any yield on that. Well, you don't get any yield on anything else anymore. So, yeah, so, exactly. so we can say for the average person out there, owning a little bit of gold, also, you know, owning land and things like that, that in the past we would say these are not income producing assets necessarily. They may actually become assets that preserve value. So we, value. we touch on how much in the book. We tackle that question of how much gold to own. It's a lot less than you would think. So right. we give some like what if numbers, percentages. It's a very low amount. You don't need a ton of this stuff, okay? Yeah. The richest families in the world, they have a little bit of gold. It's nothing crazy, all right? And then the income situation. The mining companies are raising dividends right now. The big mining companies, Newmont, Barrick, Ignico Eagle, all these Alamos Gold, they're all raising their dividends, okay? They are producing tons and tons of cash. The royalty companies are producing tons of cash. So, I mean, there is income there. It's that people haven't, they haven't looked. And so, you know as well as I do, it's one person at the party. There's going to be two. There's going to be three. There's going to be a thousand. Yep. Okay, so now I just want to wrap this whole thing up by talking briefly about your business because I think it's a valuable model. Now I'm going to try to explain it in layman's terms and then I want you to then correct and improve my explanation. But I'm going to explain it as a startup. Imagine you have started up a company and you are running this company. All of your risk is in this company. Everything 100%. If it fails, you lose everything. Now imagine that an investor comes along and they say, look, we own a hundred startup companies and therefore we have rights to the profits or the revenues of those companies. Why don't you have us buy a share in your company and we'll give you a share in the holding company that we own that owns a hundred companies. Now you're going to bust your butt still on your company, but you've diversified your risk because if your company went bust, you would still have the income from the other 99 companies in the portfolio. So that's kind of my way of thinking about it, but maybe you can just explain what you're doing and see if for the average person out there, like you said, they could do this in their own country. Yeah, so you're pretty much on the right track, except for we wanna take less risk. So what we do is we don't go to the total startup, we go to the startup that made it. We go to that guy and we then we get him to trade his startup that already made it. Because why am I going to take risk? So in the gold business, you have exploration, which means that you're hunting around in the middle of nowhere, poking yep. some holes in the ground. It's very expensive. And you have about a one in a thousand chance of finding something. So that's a bad business. Yep. Then you have development. Now, what development means is that you found something and you're in the process of fully planning how you're going to mine this. And we like development because development still gives you some upside, you know, but it's not so risky. You know something is there. And then you have production. Now, production is very expensive. It's kind of like buying a building on the corner of Main Street and Main Street. You're going to pay top dollar for this. And so we don't think that's really something that's good to buy. So we go to the guy 
who has a royalty on the development asset. And we say, look, you found this thing in 1985. It's 2020. I mean, aren't you getting tired of waiting? Yes, I'm really getting tired of waiting. Well, the good news is there's a lot of gold there. And so instead of waiting any longer, trade us that royalty for stock in our company. We have 50 royalties. And that way, you can participate in this diversified group of royalties, which trades at a higher value because it's, it, one royalty has a lot of risk. I mean, if something happens to that mine, you lose all the cash flow. So the market doesn't reward that. So when you get to 50, one royalty can have a hard time and no one cares because there's so many royalties. It's like a, it's like a whole choir of people singing. If one person coughs, you don't even notice because you have so many people singing. So we've built this company from zero to 50 royalties by going to people, building their trust, and having them talk to the people we bought the last royalties from that are happy, okay? That's the other thing. You, and when for you the make an investment, for that, yep. Yeah, when you were like to our story earlier, say, could it, would you mind if I call people that are already invested and ask them, what they think, you know. So, so we tell people, yeah, call the other people that we that we ask, and they all rave about us because they say we don't have to do anything. We have the stock; it slowly goes up. We can sell as much as we want; it doesn't matter. So, and for that new guy that comes in or is considering coming in, is his mine already producing, or it's just confirmed that there's gold there? We just bought one that's been producing for several years and has seven years left to produce. The ideal target is like it's going to produce in two or three years. And so because we can capture that value, you know, of, of getting a bit of a discount because it's not producing yet. So we're willing to, to wait and capture that value in a year or two. And the question I have for that is, let's just say that they're in the beginning of the process of starting to produce. They need capital for that. Are they getting capital from you or are they getting capital nope. from the bank? They're just doing a trans... All they're doing exactly. One, one so we don't things. do any. We don't do any investment. So they because mining companies traditionally always find a way to lose money. They're very creative. Yeah. So we don't have any tie to. If they need a hundred million to to drill some more holes, doesn't do anything to us. It's only a royalty. So royalty, the word royal, is what you would expect the royals to own. Okay, you don't see Queen Elizabeth with a lot of dirt under her fingernails from mining. Okay, a royalty is we don't care what you do over there. We're just going to take one percent of it. So that's, that's the premise. And you tie that to the mineral rights. So you're not tied to the operating company. You're tied to the actual rights to mine that gold. And if that company, if that individual has not started producing, is he, he or she then having to pay some royalty on the value that's in the ground right now? Or it's not until they realize that value? It's most of the time until it starts producing. Most okay. of the time. You can have it different ways, but generally speaking, no. the best thing I can tell you too, which I think everyone will enjoy this, is in the book, I talk about a company, two guys, one of which I know, they went to the Nevada desert in the 80s. They bought a 2% royalty on, uh, $2 million royalty, sorry, in Nevada on what they thought might be worth something one day. About six months later, a company found a gold mine running right through it. That $2 million investment, they still own it in a public company today. It's returned over a billion dollars in cash flow. A billion dollars. It's unbelievable. And you can buy stock in the company. And, you know, I tell the whole story in the book because it's an amazing business story. It's 100% true. You know, it's 30 years in the making. And I think they're geniuses. And they'll tell you, hey, we didn't know. I mean, we bought, yeah. you know, we bought a bunch of these things. We didn't know which sure. one would pay off. But I mean, that's the power. They haven't invested one dime in that mining operation, just the royalty. 
Yeah. And so the last thing to wrap up on this is that let's now bring it home for the people out there that are listening and they're not necessarily getting access. Let's just say they're not getting access to gold mines and they're not doing that. They may not even have access to be able to even buy, you know, your instrument, basically your company, but let's just bring it down to real life. We have restaurants in our neighborhood, 20 of them, people that have been running them for 10 or 15 years. Maybe they're looking for some sort of diversification, building some sort of structure that consolidates some of these companies or something like that. Does that make sense? Or is there a reason yeah, why? I mean, the best thing I could recommend that you do is when you read through the stories in my book, you see a regular guy that has put all this together over time and is going to tell you all about it. And what happens is, even if you're in a business that has nothing to do with what I'm talking about, is you get to see exactly how I think. And how I think is not something that I learned when I was a child. It's something I learned along the way. And so I'm walking through a lot of rattlesnakes. Yeah, I'm going to tell you this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened and things continue to happen. And I'm going to continue to share those things. And the reason why it's important to someone in a business that has something to do with this is that when you start learning how to think, what happens is you start noticing opportunities all around you. I met my business partner, Brett, by complete chance. But was it chance? No, because I was writing a blog and I went to New York City for one day to attend a, a conference and he did the same thing from California and sat next to me. and we known each other ever since, and now we've created one of the fastest growing royalty companies on the exchange. This is obviously over a decade later, but my point is, is that if I wasn't exploring and learning to think and questioning things and spending my time learning, not watching television, not distracting myself with social media, I was learning and I was curious and I was hungry and I wanted to hear other people's stories. And by doing that for some time, you start to then notice all the opportunities are right around you already. Like you said, you're in your neighborhood. There's opportunities in your neighborhood. And don't think someone's going to just give you a, a set of instructions, okay? What's going to happen is you're going to find them when you spend time and invest in yourself. And you're going to find the journey is the fun part. Believe me, the rattlesnakes, if there wasn't rattlesnakes, it wouldn't be any fun. So, ladies and gentlemen, you really need to go and check out why gold, why now, the war against your wealth and how to win it. Because not only are you going to learn a lot about gold, but you're going to learn about how to walk through a minefield of rattlesnakes. You can get it on Kindle, you know, on Audible, and also on paperback. Now, it's important to remember, listeners, that this is not a recommendation, but this because we know in our podcast that we're looking for ideas, but we also know that we don't wanna make the first mistake, the most common mistake of all, and that is fail to do our research. So anything that you learn on this podcast, you wanna make sure that you're doing your own research. Now, last question, what's your number one goal for the next 12 months? This year, I'm gonna walk 10,000 steps every single day, 365 days of the year. So I'm already, I'm doing it, my phone keeps track, and I'm on track doing it, and I found I've never felt better. Are you doing that indoors or outdoors? Outdoors. Perfect. Yeah, outdoors. And I prefer outdoors. Yeah, I mean, because you get to have a little meditation, you walk, you have your bodies moving. It's very nice. It gives you time to think. 
think clearly. I recommend putting the phone on do not disturb yeah. so that no one's going to bother you. But this time walking, I do this in the morning, most of the walk, I get a little bit more in the evening. And I set a goal of the number of steps because otherwise you, you don't want to do it. So I set the step goal and I've been compulsive about it. And I'm so happy that I've been doing it and we're halfway through the year. That's exciting. I uh, got my Fitbit, which I wear every day for six years now, being an yeah. analyst. But I have a walk that I do early in the morning and it's about 8,000 steps and I get it done by about 5 a.m., maybe six some days. And once you get five to 8,000 steps done in the morning, you're home free. You're home free. Yep. All right, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit my worst investment ever.com. Now, EB, as we end, I want to thank you for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. And I also want to congratulate you because you are one of the brave ones. You see, most people I ask to come on the show say, no, Andrew, I'd prefer to talk about my winners. Of course, we did talk about some winners today, but you were willing to go through this. So for that, I want to tell you that I appreciate you taking that worst investment moment and turning it into your best teaching moment. So do you have any parting words for the audience? That's it. I'd love to have people check out the book. I have my LinkedIn contact details in there and would love to stay connected and try to post things, you know, when we make progress with the company and what I'm up to. And we're all on our own journey and we can learn from each other. Fantastic. And for the listeners out there, I'll put all the links in the show notes. But if you want to go to the LinkedIn right now, you just type in e.btucker, e.b.thentucker. That's it. And you'll get there. You'll, you'll, see, you'll see a picture that looks strangely familiar to the one you see on the screen right now. Yeah, it's kind of a serious picture. I'm looking at it right now. It's very serious. Yes, very yeah. serious. All right, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our wealth, fellow risk takers. This is Andrew Stotz, the worst podcast host, saying, I'll see you on the upside.